This episode of Classic Reps and Memories is in the memory of Gito G. LaBelle and Antonio Inoki. Hello once again, wrestling fans. Uh, welcome to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. Thanks for tuning in. This is our annual Halloween Havoc episode. And not only do we talk about Halloween Havoc every October, it's the month of Halloween, so we do this annual crossover in the Halloween spirit. All of the shows that we cross-promote and put together have a Halloween theme. So obviously the Halloween Havoc over... On our other Geekville shows, we have Examining the Dead, where Train does his 31 horror movies for Halloween. We also induct a Halloween-oriented individual or act into our Lesson on Geek Hall of Fame. And we also do Nostalgia Trip as well, which is also Halloween-themed. We've done The Munsters and The Addams Family. This year, we're going to be doing The Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. So a lot of crossover, a lot of fun to be had, and... We'll, we'll we'll have a few more surprises on the way. So, but that is for the other shows. This is Classic Wrestling Memories. And I want to welcome in my usual co-host from a nice soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. Oh, morning, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I, we, we're getting kind of used to this. I think, was it the third or fourth year we've done this now? Yeah, I think it's the third. Um, yeah. And so we've always said we've got at least what ten, twelve Halloween hammocks, and if we're by the grace of God still still doing this by then. We can either just start over the beginning or we can move over to other stuff. There's Undertaker Chain Fog alone. It's probably three episodes and very fitting for Halloween. Easily, yeah. <laughs> but, it, yeah, but anyway, it, it, it's, this is fun. This is, uh, for me, a uh, transition time. I, I'm entering college at this point. I wasn't as much into wrestling as I have been as a teenager, uh, but it's still the early days of WTW, which is taking over for the, the territory I grew up on in mid-Atlantic with the Crockett's. And this is also the time I believe you started watching Fairly regularly, wasn't it, Seth? Yeah, this is. I had been watching WWF at the time pretty regularly. I started shortly after Royal Rumble 1990, watching it regularly. But I had only been watching WCW off and on around this point. I wasn't keeping right. fully in touch with it because, quite frankly, at that age, teenage Mark, I wanted to see Hulk Hogan and all, all the big stars. So I didn't really right. watch WCW that much at the time. But they eventually won me over because of the, as a whole at the time, WCW, I think, had the better in-ring product and was less theatric, less cartoony. Less cartoony. Yeah, exactly. So I, just, I think the listeners need to just kind of have that in the back of their mind. One, for us personally, this is a, a, a pretty important moment in, in history or time in history for our fandom of pro wrestling and also a very significant time in WCW because they're new. They haven't been mm-hmm. around, but it's a little bit over a year. So right. just kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we talk about and break down this this card. So, Seth, why don't you give us all the particulars of the show and all that kind of stuff, all, all, all the all the stuff you, you you hardcore nerds really love, the hard mm-hmm. data. Yeah. This was in October 27th, 1990. It took place at the UIC Pavilion in Chicago, which at the time was kind of the regular NWA venue that they, they would run there. It was, it's smaller. The attendance, I believe, was about 8,000. And how far is you off the pavilion from where you are? Uh, probably about a half hour, I'd say. I don't oh, so think, not that bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's not too far out from the downtown area. Somewhat related question. Have you, did you ever, were you ever able to attend a live WCW show at the UIC pavilion? No, by the, the first WCW live show I went to, I think was the spring stampede that they had at the Rosemont horizon. They, they had now the, what, the, the Allstate the Allstate arena, arena or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. They ran one show at Allstate, what is now known as the Allstate arena. But ever since then, when they ran in Chicago, they ran at the United Center, which is a bigger building. In. That's the Bulls home. Isn't it? Right, right. The Bulls and the Blackhawks play there. Great great venue for sports and, and wrestling. I think I've seen just about everything at United Center at some point and, and at uh, Rosemont well, Horizon. Uh, well, uh, it obviously was built for basketball and hockey, so it probably would be right. a great sports venue. <laughs> right. But in 1990, an interesting bit of trivia, both WCW and WWF had new faces as their top guys. Of course, in WWF, Ultimate Warrior had won the title from Hulk Hogan, and this was a few months after Sting finally beat Ric Flair for the NWA title. And of course, coincidentally, Sting and Warrior broke into the business together as a tag team called the Blade Runners. So you had a former tag team, one in one company, one in another, and they were both the top babyfaces for a while. 
and other top well, they stars. They were Runners in Memphis mm-hmm. when they got their national exposure, but even predating that, they were a power team USA or something when they started. I, I think so. One of them even went by the name Rock. It was Flash and Rock, I think. Red Bat Fiends guys, just one of the guys, the bodybuilders looks. And yep. then there was four of them and, and Jerry Garrett. And I want those two. And they became the Blade Runners. That was Jim Hellwig and Steve Borden. Mm-hmm. But other top stars in WCW at the time, I'd say were Lex Luger, Stan Hansen, Freebirds, the Steiners. There's several other names in there. This was towards the end of the Rock and Roll Express as top guys in for WCW or for the NWA. And the mm-hmm. main angle going on was Sting feuding with the Horsemen because they had reorganized. And we'll, we'll get a little more specific now when we start talking about the actual matches and angles. But that, that's kind of, in a nutshell, what it was. This was late 1990, yep. and WCW had only been around for really about a year as WCW. And they were in the process of rebranding because it's I think it's in a couple months is when they actually break from the NWA and stop right. using the NWA title, and they make their own WCW title. Yeah, I, I believe, I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, please let us know in the comments. But I believe this might have been the last pay-per-view that they actually produced under the NWA banner, which in the next one will be Starcade in a few months. We'll talk about the fallout of, of this February. We'll talk about what kind of it sets up for. And this was also in the Jim Hurd era, right? The infamous Jim Hurd era. I want to say if it isn't right at the start of this run, it's right before. Well, what matters the most when we say that is Flair and Hurd have not butted head yet. <laughs> mm. It's soon to come, but either Hurd hadn't pissed off Flair yet, or he wasn't around for to piss Flair off yet. But it's coming soon. Yep. And I believe the Booker at this time would have been probably an old, wouldn't it? Probably, yeah, because I know he had joined the Horseman again, and then I believe he had retired a few months earlier and was acting kind of more as the J.J. Dillon of the group. Because by this time, J.J. Dillon had been working, I think it was talent relations in, in WWF at the time. He had yeah, the job had, that had, Jim Ross would have yeah, been. He, Jim, Jim Ross was actually replaced him at the, in the talent relations years mm-hmm. later in, right. up north. And, but yeah, I think if I remember right, when, once they went national and Turner bought it, there was the thought that Oli was a good guy to, because they were on the outs of Bethany. And Oli was like the guy that knew a lot of the talent and actually had experience booking a nationally syndicated television show that was wrestling based because of his, his time booking the old Georgia championship wrestling on Turner back in the early age. So it's, it's true. He really did. He was really one of the few guys out there that had an experience on how to do television at that level that right. could book. Maybe mm-hmm. the only other one I can think of was Phil Dundee. As he booked for that uh, for a time for Bill Watts uh, when UWF was syndicated heavily nationally. But I don't remember where Dundee was at the time. He might have been working in the front office of WCW. If not, he was probably working in Memphis. Or he might have been in that short live run that Ken Mantell had with uh, an offshoot of world class. I can't remember. But he was, it was really, they're the only two I can, I can think of American-based guys that had experience booking a national television founder that weren't already under contract. So, you know, flip a coin. Yeah, that, that's the important thing to specify is we're talking on a national level because a, a, a lot of guys there had experience a, as bookers, but they were booking more for territories mm-hmm. than than for a national audience. Right. Maybe, like I said, you throw Dusty in that group along with Bill and, and with Ben D and, and Ole, but as we know, Dusty was on outs with them because of the whole bleeding situation a few years earlier with the, the, the spike and all that with the road warriors. We've discussed that in previous episodes. Yeah. So Dusty had already gone to Vince and was in the middle of his dancing polka dot, polka gimmick, dot which only Dusty Rhodes could have made that work. And I think also at that time too, this would have been right around the time or right before Cody was born. I think he was focusing a little bit more on family at that point too, but I could be wrong. It is an interesting note for me, at least, that the the commentators, the play-by-play commentator was, of course, Jim Ross, because the regular WCW guy for years. But the color commentary is a pre-ECW, Polly Dangerously, a.k.a. Paul Heyman, with a full head of hair. And uh, I know <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people really don't associate him with color commentary that much. He probably did it the most raw when he was also alongside Jim Ross. But I... I thought it was a little surreal considering the history that those two would go on to have, or as far as their contributions to the, to the business, that seeing those two side by side as a commentary team before that happened, I thought was pretty. You know, Jim Roth has said multiple times on his, on his own podcast that he always felt that he and 
and Paul Lee had good chemistry. He enjoyed yeah. working with them. Yeah, he he ran on, on WWE. And I, I tend to agree. I thought they went well off. So that's kind of the state of wrestling and the state of WCW at the time. So we'll take a look at the main event angle and as well as the angles for the supporting matches. Now, it's worth noting here that we're going to be talking about the version that is readily available on Peacock or the WWE Network, depending on what area of the world you live in. But that version is actually not the complete version that aired on pay-per-view. It was the version that was released on video cassette. Probably, I, I would imagine, it's a couple months later. And it actually has only about half the matches that actually were part of the live broadcast. I'm, I'm assuming it was to keep it down because it's, it's two hours on Peacock. And in those days, videotape, you start having something longer than two hours and you wind up having to put it on two tapes and essentially make it a two-part show, which naturally would jack up the prices. So they probably just edited those out to save on videotape space. And that, that's just my assumption. I, I don't know that for an absolute fact. Right. And that's not, that sounds like a reasonable assumption. And I would, I, I, I can't remember 32 years ago, but I, I'm thinking that the live broadcast was like right at three hours or close to it. Because that's kind of what you would buy satellite time. You had the old school pay per view. You, you buy right. them like like three hollow blocks. So, yeah. and most most pay per views, both WCW and WWF at the time, were not not really a full three hours. They were closer, like what two and a half, two forty five usually. Yeah, yeah. I'd usually see on the videotapes when I would rent them, it, it would say approximately three hours. So it was probably like that fifteen minute window or so. So it might have been two hours forty, two hours forty five. Because they usually in those days, because analog was still very much in use i believe they had to end enough time before the end of the third hour to give the distributor who's ever running the show time to rewind the tape and so that it can be available on, on time for the replay when the replay would kick in right shortly after the live version because in those days right, they, right. They, they would show a, a live and then they would have a replay which I would assume maybe just for people right who weren't there, but but right afterwards, maybe it was just a, a time thing. But it also could just be for people who might live on the, the West Coast, where it would be on 8 p.m. on the East Coast. But that would mean it would be, what, 4 p.m. on the uh, on the West Coast. So maybe they would just rerun the tape right, th right. three hours later right. so that it's... Yeah, well, that was, that, was a, that was the thing behind that time. With most, most pay-per-views, most, some are West Coast based, but most of them emanating live from Central or Eastern time zones. With that delay that we're talking about, you're going to catch the West Coast feed, California, and then even over to Hawaii, which started about the time people didn't help them work. So it was kind of, kind of work. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'm glad Seth brought this up. So if you watched the show on pay-per-view or you were fortunate enough to be there live back in 1990, you would have seen 10 matches that, that made the actual pay-per-view and two dark matches, two matches that were not on the paper, that were in the building for the crowd. And when we break down the match, like she said, we'll break down the ones that are available on the Peacock, which is the, which is the VHS version, which is six of them. But real quick, before we get into those, let me discuss a little bit about the matches that you will not see if you watch Peacock. But if you were there or if you go to Wikipedia and look at their entry or online or you have an old observer or torch, they're going to mention these matches in their review of the show. And the two dark matches were Tim Horner beating Barry Horowitz and Rip Rogers beating Rio Riggins. Pretty standard fare for that time, I think, to WCW. Mm -hmm. This is right before Cornette leaves and starts Smoky Mountain. And, of course, Tim Porter becomes a, 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 main, a main guy there. But he's never was a main guy in WCW. Barry Horowitz, we all know about. That was kind of his gimmick was he never won, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Even though he was in a very, very good worker. Very great hand in the ring. Rip Rogers, who I think was one of the most criminally underrated workers of all time. Great heel. Beating Reno Riggins. Reno Riggins was much like Barry Horowitz, just kind of a career jobber. So I, I get it. You have a baby face and a heel go over in the two dark matches, kind of get the crowd. The other matches you're not going to see are going to be our Terry Taylor beating Bill Irwin. I don't think they really had much of a plan for Terry Taylor at the time. This couldn't have been long off, off the heels of the Red Rooster. So maybe they were trying to wash that thing out of a lot of people's mouth. Yeah. And Bill Irwin was one of those guys that came over in the UWF buyout that had never been really accepted by WCW fans and fans here. Even though I always thought Bill Irwin was a pretty good worker myself. Another match you're not going to see was Brad Armstrong going over J.W. Storm. J.W. Storm was at the time an indie guy and was getting shot and he never really caught on. Brad Armstrong, I don't 
we did a whole episode on the Armstrong family. I don't think we need to go over our thoughts on Brad Armstrong. He would fall in and out of being a guy that was pushed in WCW. Lack the promo, but my gosh, you talk about entering work and body. to give it to anybody, don't you agree? Oh, yeah. One of the best dropkicks of all time, too. Oh, yeah, without doubt. And blind as a bat, but never, never sniffed a guy. <laughs> uh, another match you won't see, I don't think, on the tape is the Master Blaster, Blade and Steel, which, of course, I believe Steel was the, was the first gimmick that Kevin Nash had, wasn't it? Correct, yeah. This was before he became the Great Oz, and he was tag-teaming right, right. with, I believe it was Blade, who was yeah. probably best known for Al Green. Obviously not the Reverend Al Green, right. the wrestler Al Green. Right, and they, they, they were a gimmick that was weird. They kind of looked like they were from like the Road Warrior movie. Mm-hmm. But they kind of played up that they were like kind of this post-apocalyptic vibe, but it looked like they, they worked as welders because they always would have them covered with like soot. And it was a very strange gimmick. And that was the one thing at WCW starting out, the beginning of Jim Hurd trying to compete with Vince. So coming up with more cartoon characters against the Southern Boys, which was Tracy Smothers. Straight mm-hmm. up, everybody dies, Tracy Smothers. <laughs> and and Brad's brother, Steve Armstrong, highly underrated team. This is before they had changed them. They had turned them to the, 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 the young guns. They were still playing. They were still coming out like a Confederate garb and just playing up the people, good old boy. And, and, and I think they, if I remember the end of this match was, was, was Cornette trying to attack, I, I think it was Steve. And that distraction caused them to get, I think, clotheslined or so buggery by, by Steele, by Kevin Nash and got the win. And then the other match you won't see much farther down the card. It was kind of the buffer match before all the big title matches happened. And that was JYD versus Moondog Rex. JYD obviously was a shadow of what he had been 10 years before. And he was one of those guys that was brought in by George Scott, who was booking for a while there before the book went to Ole. Because as I brought up before, Seth is a big fan of George Scott. I'm not in his booking. This is why I don't like him. He was bringing in guys that he has had success with 10, 15, 20 years earlier. Well, these guys were shells of their former selves. And JYD was a great example. They even put him in there with Flair a year before, and it didn't really matter. If Flair can't carry you to a good match, you might as well just quit. Right. I think yeah. you could agree with that. Get you yeah. I, if you hadn't have said it, I would have. Yeah. And, and Moondog Rex, of course, the Moondogs were longtime heels in both Memphis and up north in New York. And so I think if I remember right, Moondog Rex just brought in to, to play up the dog versus stone angle. They didn't really have anything left to do with Jeff Hard Dog. It was obviously both these guys are very limited at this point in their career on what they could do, especially cardiovascular. So it was a quick ball. It was a quick, quick match. Moondog Rex tries to hit JYD with his bone. JYD blocks it, gives him a big headbutt. One, two, three. Yeah. Now, so they, all these matches are an example of what we brought up last year when we talked about Havoc Night 89 where it, it, it's shocking they would have matches, which are just a job matches, or on a pay-per-view. And that seems weird to, to current fans where there seems to be at least an, uh, somewhat of an angle involved in every match. And it's a, it's a decent match, every match on a pay-per-view. Well, back then we brought up last year, we're now with these matches here. This is a transitional time. This is when their WCW is beginning to figure out what they should and shouldn't put on pay-per-view. And I think the bulk of these matches outside of maybe the Blaster Blasters versus the Southern Boys, it's probably a match that shouldn't have been on the paper. should have been reserved for a Saturday night. I'm, I'm sure you're in agreement with me, yeah. Beth, on that. Yeah, yeah. It's, and I think the match, was, according to Wikipedia, the match was three and a half minutes, so I didn't have not really much time to do and, and, and here's that. A, the one match I've just brought up that probably should have been on the pay-per-view, but they removed Master Blasters versus Southern Boys, you already had a spot, which will bring up with Cornette on the show, and I don't think they knew quite what, what to do with the Master Blasters. As Steph just brought up pretty soon, they're, they're putting Kevin Nash in the Oz gimmick. Like I just brought up, the Southern Boys are, are fairly soon going to be switched to the, the, young, the Young Pistols. So, you know, it, the Young Guns or whatever. Well, it was young. Yeah, I think it was Young Pistols. So, yeah, so it, 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 I can get it now. Looking back in it, hindsight and all, these are not two acts that they're going to strap a rocket to or get even a mid-card push. They're getting ready to change them anyway. So, Seth, why don't you start with the first match, and we'll just go on from there. Okay. So, the, the first the first match on the event that you see on Peacock was Tommy Rich and Ricky Morton beating the Midnight Express, Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane. Of course, Cornette was with them as well. And the buildup to this match was that the Midnight Express had attacked and injured Robert Gibson. And I think he actually had an injury in real life, but they did the storyline. He did. To, to put him out of action, and Tommy Rich, who, of course, 
another one of those young, good-looking athletic guys that was popular with the ladies and was just a natural fit, I think, for, for Ricky Morton. He kind of has that same rock and roll vibe to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. I believe... And as far as the injury goes, it was it was real. The Rock and Roll Express have been working on house shows, Doom, and we'll bring up later. I, I think, because as you pointed out, the Rock and Rolls are kind of on their way out. Doom with an up-and-coming team. This is a chance for them to put the veteran team in there of good hands with Butch and, and Ron to kind of let them get their bearings as a tag team. And who just heard his knee pop one night and he felt really bad. He felt bad when they got out in the locker room and I think I've hurt my knee. And he went and got a doctor look at it. He found out it was injured and he was going to just work through the injury because uh, this was a time if you didn't work, you didn't get paid. There weren't that many guaranteed contracts back then. And Robert and Ricky, we've brought up on other podcasts and always felt like they were always trying to torpedo them and, 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 and split them up. And there was a fear that that was what was going to happen. If one of them took time off, he would put a legitimate injury. And it was finally Ron Simmons who told Robert, no, man, take your time off. With this new corporate structure, they're going to pay you while you're out. This ain't like the old days. So you've been doing this for a long time. You, you're one of the top draws of the, of the decade. You're getting up there in years. You're not spring chicken. Take the time off and heal. And let them pay you while you sit home. Mm-hmm. And so Robert thought about it and he said, okay, I'm going to do that. And as soon as he was able to get back on camera, he did. But he did it with a knee immobilizer on because he completely blew his knee out. I think towards ACL and, and, and on crutches. And so to explain this, because they had no plan for an angle between Doom and the Rock and Roll Express. They just said it was the Midnight Express because that was one of those things, I think, as they were making this transition and, and the Doom and Steiners, these other teams are rising up. They didn't know what to do with Rock and Rolls and Midnight. They just knew they didn't want to let either one of them go. They were so good. So they just went back to the well again one more time because, let's be honest, does the Rock and Roll Midnight ever not work? Right. So, I mean, it, just, it was just something to, to fulfill time. This is part of what led to the frustration that Cornette had that we'll see him leaving fairly soon after to start Slokey Mountain. And like you said, with Tommy, it made sense. He kind of had the same look. Tommy had run with the Rock and Roll Express back in the day, legitimately behind the scenes. So it all just kind of made a perfect fit. And it's just, it, 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 as a booker, I can tell you from times I've helped book, having a, a match that you don't have to worry about because the guys know what they're doing and know how to get over. And even if you don't have plans for them, but if you tell them, I need you to kill 12 minutes and give me a good story, they're going to do it. That's what I kind of think this is going on in this match. This is like, we need to have X number of matches on the card. We can put these two teams in, you know, with Cornette and, and Robert on the outside as window dressing. And believe me, all six guys are going to deliver. I don't even have to watch the match. I know it's going to be fine. I'm sure you can understand that mindset. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's also the mindset that I think a lot of promoters have. At least this is my assumption, just, just based on what I see, not any knowledge about the business but a lot of times you, promotions will put a very hot action-packed match as the first match on the card wcw would do yep. it with the cruiserweights and that table yep gets it gets the crowd pumped up for the rest of the show so i think that's another reason why they were probably the opening match you had two good-looking popular baby faces were athletic against athletic heels but like you said they, the these guys could probably have 100 matches in a row with each other and they'd all be good to great and, and it, what's amazing is they'd all be different, which is mm-hmm. a exactly. skill that a lot of the young guys don't have nowadays. <laughs> right. Now, the finish to the match was the Southern Boys, we talked about a little bit before, were going to become the Young Pistols. And they had actually come down and they did a they did a distraction finish, but I think it was to kind of play off the good for the goose, good for the gander type thing, because obviously Cornette was a heel. He'd interfere in matches all the time. So I think it was just kind of giving the heals their just desserts. That, that's just my thoughts on why right. they did that. And the Midnight's had, had worked the, the, the young, the, the Southern boy, on a couple of like clashing champions. There was a, a little bit of an angle between that time. The second match on the show would be the fabulous Freebirds, obviously Hayes and Garvin. And they went against the Renegade Warriors, who were Chris and Mark Youngblood. And they had the their second, you might say, Rocky King under the name Little Richard Marley. And Obviously, the, the Freebirds were the heels. Renegade Warriors were the were the baby faces. This was not a title match, but this is one of those where I I think the conventional wisdom would be whichever team won this would be getting a shot at one of the two tag team titles because 
At this point in time, WCW right. did have two tag team titles. They had world tag team titles and they had U.S. tag titles, just like I had a world champion and a U.S. champion. So it seems like they right. would use the U.S. titles as secondary belts for the more up-and-coming team. But we'll talk about that when we get that match. Because um, I know that I couldn't help but notice that the Freebirds actually came out with makeup on, which they almost never do. But they were they were poking fun right. at the Renegade Warriors by doing that. It's like they were mocking the the war painter that's right. Native American, right? If somewhat. If, if you remember at this point, because when they originally came in, they had Terry. And Jimmy was not a part of the, of, of the group. It was Jimmy. There was Terry, Buddy. And then Buddy left and Jimmy did come in. And then Terry left and went to Japan and formed the tag team Miracle Violence Connection with Steve Williams, which we both talked glowingly about many times. Yep. So... Still one of the greatest tag team you know, names I, of I all time. Oh, that name has got to be top five. Great tag mm-hmm. team ever, especially considering the two guys were in it. I'm very fitting. But Jimmy was calling himself Jam, Jimmy Jam Garvin, because all the other Freebirds had their little Terry Bam Bam Gordy, Michael PFA, Buddy Jack Roberts. And they were trying to, they were trying to recapture the glory of the early 80s in Dallas against Von Erics. So Michael, who's always been a huge mark for Southern rock and hard rock bands, decided, okay, we'll be a rock band. So some of their makeup was to play on like the, the glam bands of, 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 that were still uh, they're getting ready to die because grunge is getting ready to take over. But mm-hmm. they were in their, on their last legs, Poison and, and, and Warrant and Bon Jovi and bands like that. So they're wearing the makeup, partly, like you said, to make fun of, of, of the Renegade Warriors, partly to play up wearing makeup because they were all rock band now. They changed their their, uh, their theme song. It wasn't no, it was no longer Bad Street USA. It was something else. And Rocky King as Little Richard Marley was this play on well known rock stars being Little Richard and Bob Marley. And it was he was meant to be their roadie. That's how, but that's how far they went into this idea that they were now a a wrestling rock man. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 Rocky King was a guy that man, always had a, a decent look and was a pretty good worker. And all the vets loved him. He was one of those guys like George South and the Mulkies, but guys on TV would, would be begged to work him because they knew they'd have, they, he'd make them look good on television. And they'd actually give him a little stuff because he could, he could handle it. So I think this was just a, 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 a kind of a, an attaboy for, mm-hmm. for Rocky King to actually put him with, with a, a figured in, pushed act, and get some TV time. And it works well when you use a second uh, manager or ballet or whatever with the heel act. It always worked. And the Renegade Warriors, they, you know, they had the legacy with with being the brothers of, of Jay Youngblood. And this is one of the first times, this predates Satanka. This is one of the first times since, oh, probably Jay in the early 80s in Wahoo of, of, an, of a Native American wrestlers really playing up their Native American heritage. Is, am I wrong in thinking that? Uh, no, I think you're right. So, I mean, this is well after the heydays of Wahoo and, and Jay Strongbow and, and Jay had been off. I mean, I don't, I think Jay had passed away by then. If he hadn't, he wasn't wrestling anymore. So I, I, I thought they were, I always thought the Renegade Warriors, partly because I'm a Mark from the young one, was, was, was a good little act, mid-card tag team act. What'd you think? Uh, yeah, this was the first time I think I truly saw them in action, but I, I can see why they would get the baby face push because again, decent looking guys, athletic, they're, they're trying to. Right probably trying to at- attract a, a demographic or, or ethnicity, you might say, have, have like a, an ethnic hero. Right. Plus, plus, like you said, they're good looking, so the ladies like them. Well, how did that match finish? I can't remember the finish to that match. I know that the birds won. Remember. That uh, was one of those matches I got up. I got up to go get something to eat when I was watching it this morning. And by the time I came back, it was over I was, by the time you were. Three birds getting their hands raised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a pretty good match. I sometimes, um, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. What? what was that? What was the finish? Do you remember? It was kind of your regular distraction finish, you might say, because Rocky okay. King got on the apron, got the attention of Pee Wee Anderson, the referee, and I believe it was Garvin that got rolled up. The I think it was O'Connor roll type type roll up, and okay, he so he would have gotten the pin, but the referee's back was turned. Hayes then clonked the young blood, knocked him down with the referee's back turned. Michael Hayes came in, hit the DDT, and then Garvin was just, just right. able was able to cover to get them. So it it, it was a pretty standard. Yeah, this point, yeah, this is the point where the where the, the Freebirds started using this DDT at their finish. Both of them. The classic underhanded win. This should be a clue to anybody watching the live event that this that there's some matches missing. Because except in, in Seth's world, he's a big tag team mark. No big promotion is going to have two back to back tag team matches mm-hmm. on a big show. They're going to have 
the three singles matches I went over earlier that were kind of job matches, those are what actually fell in between these two matches on the line on the live show. Yeah, it makes sense. Does that make sense? I know you look back after it was up to you. you. I've seen some of your fantasy books that you Yeah, maybe it's the New Japan fan of me, I guess. I can yeah. see why it would be considered too much of the same thing, not enough variety. You, you do want to have, as the old saying goes, it's like a circus. You want, you need, you have a lot of variety. Everybody can't have right. five star, 35 minute matches. Uh, on one event, you'll that, that would get old really quick. And you're not wrong about about the Japanese thing. When I went over there and wrestled, we were often the opening match in a, in a, in a six man match, followed by four or five other six man or regular time before they actually got the singles match. That's just how they do it in Japan. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not wrong in making that assumption about that. And that's just a key difference between Japanese wrestling and American wrestling. We just don't mm-hmm. do that over. And then right. you can go to Mexico, and there can be every every single match on the card could be a, a, a trios match, a six man match. With the main event being the only match the singles match. So. Right, right. Although usually I think that that singles match main event is probably for a title. Usually they are like a hair versus mask or something like that. Right. So the next match on the card was the Steiner brothers defending the U.S. tag team titles against the Nasty Boys. Talked before about they had two sets of champions. They had the world tag team champions and then the U.S. tag champions. This was during the Steiners' original rise to, to start them. Well, I think they did the, the round-robin tournament at the previous year's Starcade, which I believe the Road Warriors right, right. won the, the Iron Man, Iron Team tournament, yeah. So exactly yeah, right. but they were still in their early years as, as far as teaming together. So they were the hot, young, new team. So they had them on the U.S. titles. This was also pretty early on in the Nasty Boys run before they made the jump to WWF. And this was just kind of the good old-fashioned tag team brawl. You got the athletic good guys. You got the street brawling bad guys who never failed to cheat, you might say. And uh, But the the Steiners did retain because this is when they were doing the unique double team moves. They they do like a... Somebody on Rick's shoulders, then Scott would do like a DDT or a Bulldog or stuff like that. Something that really would right. I, I, if athletics. I remember right, this was the first time that they ever even did the Bulldog, the double team Bulldog on television. And I want to say it was, I want to say it was Knobs took it, but uh, that wasn't the finish. The finish, of course, was the Frankenstein. Right. That was yeah. the standard finish for Steiner matches at the time was Scott doing the Frankenstein. Back when any, almost nobody did Hurricane Ranas. And th- this was the... Right. The original Frankensteiner, where he would whip the guy into the ropes and just jump and do it. He wouldn't put somebody on on the turnbuckles first. Right. He would just he just he didn't really jump up on their shoulders. He just like jumped up like he was doing a drop kick, put the, his feet around their head, and then cut them. Right, but it, it, for its time, it was a very impressive move because you got to be really athletic to right. pull off something like that. I would say I would think it's probably easier to do the top rope. Hurricane Rana, because you don't have to jump up from the mat, you can have your opponent right. sitting on the ropes, and it's easier to right. pull that off, even though it still looks impressive. Yep. This feud had been going for a little while. It makes sense. You're, you want to build the Steiners up. You bring in a, a fairly a well-known tag team like the Nasty Boys, who are also kind of on their way up. I don't, I, I, they hadn't gone to bench yet, become champs up there, but they would. And it's just, like you said, four big dudes beat the crap out of each other. These matches were stiff. Mm-hmm. So, and then after the match, Scott Steiner was cutting a promo, and this was a good reminder of how much Scott Steiner had to work or to become Big Papa Pump because this was not a Big Papa yeah. Pump promo. And really, he was Big Papa Pump for about a year before he really settled into the crazy Scott Steiner that we have known since. Right. And then he got jumped by. The Nasty Boys, because one of them even took the time to dress up as a food vendor first. And yep. so it was, it was kind of funny that after they got beat, they somehow managed to dress up as a as a hot dog vendor or something like that that hit Scotty from behind. But this was also a reminder of something that I miss in wrestling. They they really don't do it that much anymore. Nowadays, they do a lot of the promos backstage, but they were doing a lot of live promos before and after matches in front of the crowd. And to me, that yeah. always just seemed like a bigger deal. I mean, Gene Okerlund would right. do it all the time, but it was usually designated just to do that one interview. So you'd yeah, see these he, guys. By the time WCW is incorporating now, it's usually Tony Schiavone doing mm-hmm. the interview, or sometimes sometimes Bischoff. Right. And they would do it at like the end of the entryway, kind of in this little area cordoned off by the security railing. So they're in front of the live crowd, but they're not actually like, and sometimes they do it even, even occasionally they do it in ring, or at ringside. But yeah, I do miss that severely. We get a taste of that 
now, especially in New Japan, but even there, New Japan does it backstage in front of like a press corps. Usually the, the promo, the in-ring promo is done by whoever won the main event. That, that seems to be right, the tradition. Right. And the way that the New Japan does it plays into their, their practice of trying to promote this as a legitimate sport, not sports here. Mm-hmm. So that's why they do it like, it, like it's a press conference. Not, not dissimilar to what you'd see at the end of a baseball or a football game here in America from the coaches and players after it. Then we had a very interesting match in my book. Because I, when I started watching WCW regularly, Doom had already broken up. I think it was right around the time they did the split. And Doom, for the previous year, they, they were managed by women, and they were, I think, technically called Women's Tag Team of Doom. Like, like I wasn't quite sure if Tag Team of was the official part of the name. But... Kind of like a Tribe Called Quest? <laughs> right, right. But, but Flair and Arn Anderson were the challengers to the tag title. So both teams here were heels. Now, you've said before, I think it may have been off mic, but you've said before, it's actually easier to do heel versus heel and it is babyface versus babyface because it's easier to get the crowd times. to cheer for one side over the other when they're both heels because thousand times i think for the purposes of the match i don't want to say that they were the obviously this was prime rick flair heel work but for the purposes of the match i think they were baby faces because well it's rick flair and arn anderson they'll, they'll they can actually, get cheered about right yeah you know, they, they can get cheered uh against just about everybody that's not dusty or magnum or sting I actually ate a road agent in a match a couple of weeks ago that was a tag team match of the heel team versus the heel team. And the first thing I told them was one of you is going to have to be the baby, subtly the baby. The crowd is naturally going to decide they're going to cheer one team over the other. They're all looking at me. And I just flat out told them, they kind of like you already for one of the guys. So you guys are by, by default going to be the baby faces to this match. I'm not saying you got to do baby face spots and not cheat, not do heel spots. You are. And then I looked at the other team and said, and you're going to get booed because they really hate you. And I pointed one of the guys on that team. I've heard this crowd react to you before. They don't like you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I helped them construct the match in a way where they both could get some heel tactics in and remind subtly the crowd that they were both heel. But at the end of the day, the bulk of the healing went to the one team that had the guy and I told them, they don't like you. They're going to be. And the other team, they love you. They're to the point where I even told the promoter sign, I said, down the road, we need to do the split. split this. I know you like this team, but we'll need to split them up because he is going to be. He does a he does he does a, a, a leather face gimmick. So he mm-hmm. does an Undertaker. He a horror heel. Get the crowd. He's this big dude that wears a mask and brings the chainsaw to them. You don't think that's going to get a pop in middle Georgia? Come on. <laughs> yeah. And so he's eventually they're going to have to do. And I told the I told the front that you're, you're going to have to do the the Undertaker Jake the Snake turn eventually. Mm-hmm. You're going to have. And he said, Yeah, I know. I just want to hold off on. But the point is, it's not that unusual. And like you said, Ric Flair, just based on his history in the area, was going to be the, the natural baby face in this matchup. And I cannot remember. I do not think Eddie, Teddy Long had started managing dude yet, had he? By this time, I believe he was their manager because a woman, I think, had gone to a join, a join the horseman. So I think, I think Te- yeah, right. Teddy so, was actually managing. So you have to, you have to realize that was we talked about earlier at the beginning of this episode, this is a transitional phase, and this is the beginnings of Ric Flair's problems with the company because they're wanting to phase him out. He still felt like he had plenty in the tank to be in the world, top, world heavyweight title picture. And we would find out now how that he wasn't wrong. He was right. Mm-hmm. But they would sit vicious and sting and, and, and Barry Windham and other younger guys, they were kind of wanting to phase Flair out, but they realized he still had a lot of drawing power so this is what they were doing. And, and it was a strange thing where you essentially had Flair and Arn wrestling as baby faces as members of a heel faction like the Full Horsemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, it's kind of nuts, but for whatever reason, mostly because it was Ric Flair, it kind of did work out. Mercifully, what they, they, they avoided the, the real easy out of two white guys against two black guys. They subtly touched on it a little bit, but fortunately, I think they avoided it as much as they could because this was 1990. You could have got away with that, but they, mm-hmm. they, they, they seem to steer clear of that as much as possible, which I'm, I'm thankful because you don't need that kind of cheap heat. You got four dudes that can just go. So what's the, right? Right, right. But that match ended in a double count out. So neither team won, champs retained. And I, I think that 
probably they they would do a finish like that because they probably just didn't want to beat either team, which would make me wonder why you do the match in the first place. But I also think it was, I mean, you, you can't really have uh, a major show without Ric Flair on it. No. You know, so it, I think they just had it there because it was something interesting. Too much drawing power. Yeah, they, they, they had the two heels where one's going to be the babyface by default and Doom, I think, well... They weren't undefeated this time, but they were unmasked by this time. Yes, they were. Yeah. But yeah. remember, they're in the world package and the champ. You have to mm-hmm. beat them. They don't have to be. Right, right. And then the semi-main event was... Well, let me add one thing before oh. you move on to that. Once okay. again, we just had two back-to-back tag team matches. We mm-hmm. should tell you there was probably something in between, which was that was the JYD Moondog yeah. Rex match. Yeah, so, and, and not just tag matches, again, but tag, tag title that. matches. Yeah. Yeah. So you basically had... Nothing but tag team matches so far on the card. They've eliminated all these single yeah. matches. And, and the like, funny well, thing is, I actually didn't notice that until he pointed it out. So, <laughs> again, like I said. Yeah, because you love tag team so much, you were just enjoying it. You're a whole right. tag match. <laughs> yeah. But, and so, the semi-main event was Lex Luger defending the U.S. title uh, against Stan Hansen. And my personal opinion if you had to pick the greatest U.S. champion of all time, my pick would be Luger. If anything, just based on the run he was having at this point, because he had the title of like a year and a half. I want to say he beat Hayes for it, Michael Hayes for it, as a heel. And then at some point in 1990, he had turned babyface. So he actually had right. a babyface turn while still being champion. If you're talking WTW, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. If you're talking NWA, I think Magnum ekes out just a little bit past that's you know right nostalgia yeah. and all yeah yeah and, and and that i would not argue against that but yeah. stan hansen of course this was really i don't really want to say prime because obviously he was big in the 70s and the 80s as well but he was an very much an international star by uh, at this point he was getting tons of money right. in japan and i think that's why he wasn't staying in the states too long because well he's got a fat wife and nine kids to feed so he's going to go where the where the money is i've actually talked to stan about not this particular match but i talked to him about this program this is one of those times he had already left the AWA and go back to Japan and ran over the, the belt with his pickup truck to send it back to Burger at his point. Mm-hmm. So Stan was already fairly well established as a guy that could be hard to deal with, mostly because of what you just brought up. His money was from Japan. I cannot remember the reason why he was on the outs with Japan at the time. And I'm either one of them rare times him and him and, him and Bob were not getting along, but he decided to come back stateside. Glad to make money. Glad to have a job. So he went to WCW and, and Luger was a guy who, like you had said, just freshly turned to baby face. They needed an experience because as, as great as Luger looked, and even though he'd been wrestling at this time for what, about five, six years, yeah, Luger was still very green. Mm-hmm. He, Luger had the look and the ability to follow a main event guy, pull off a main event match, but he still did not have the ability to go out and have a main event match with anybody, with Justin. Mm-hmm. So Stan made it made a lot of sense because they both had this legitimate football background. Stan was a known commodity, a former world champion in AWA. It, it just it made sense. But Stan hated this this angle for two reasons. One, he hated what they did to his character. Stan hates tobacco. He hates cigarette smoke. He hates tobacco. And if you remember, they wanted him to chew tobacco during this time. To the point where it was like literally just you know, all over his face, it just nasty, and he hated that. He hated about, about made him sick to his stomach. And so that this first thing that Stan had told me that he hated about this had nothing to do with Lakers, had everything to do with the office, how they wanted him to do the game. Just just that tobacco just drove him. Second had everything to do with Lex. He hated working. You know, Lex was so green. He said it was it was a swamp every night because you literally had to talk him through the most basic things that you you would hope. When you're working a guy that's working five years, you don't have to, to tell him. And when you're in a match and you're in a spot and you tell a guy, well, cut me off, you, you usually kind of expect if he knows what he's doing, he's been around five years and working flair and all these other guys that long, you shouldn't have to tell him what to do to cut you off. You should just naturally know, you know, rake your eyes, itch and stuff, something. He was literally having to tell him what to do to cut him off. That's how kind of clueless Lex was at that point. If I remember when they had a match again at the next paper, I remember clearly hearing Stan call at one point when he had Luger down, knee me in the head, knee me in the head. He had to call that. He should have never had to call that. He should have just called, cut me off. Mm-hmm. But so 
Hanson did not like Wookiee. And it's like, Stan wasn't me. He didn't say Luger was a bad guy or just said he was really, really green and it was difficult. And it, it, it was this was exacerbated by the fact that they were in the semi-main slot as the of being the feud over the U.S. title. And that mm-hmm. made it difficult. And I get that. I can understand that. And I think Stan at that point in his career had been around long enough that he felt that he shouldn't have to, especially with a guy that been working five or six years. But it is what it is. But this was Stan beating Lex for the U.S. title to really push that that along yeah. and i often wonder too i can't get any confirmation one way or the other talking to other old timers that were around in that locker room at that time i think this might also have been a move to kind of humble Luger a bit to take the belt right. off right because this this was the end of that year and a half title reign here. so it was mm-hmm. it, it was newsworthy because it was the, the the end of that reign i mean i think luger is one of many guys who has openly said in, in retrospect that he got too much too fast. Oh, and yeah. That was part of his problem. Yeah. He, he's even mentioned that because they, they, there was a WWE profile on him on A&E a couple of weeks back. And he said that. He said in those days, I just, I didn't know en- enough of what I should or something to that, to that end. I've heard Tony Atlas say the same thing, you know, and mm-hmm. once again, what did young Tony Atlas and young Lex Luger have in common? Got pushed to the moon right out of the, right out of the bait, right out of the well, gate. Yeah, were great because of their great, because their looks, not because mm-hmm. of their ability. I mean, if you can find two better bodies in the history of pro wrestling, young Tony Atlas and young Lex Luger, I want to see them. Mm-hmm. And those are two of the best bodies you've ever, you'll ever see in wrestling was three, four, three, four, five years of both those guys. And that brings us to the main event where Sting defended the NWA World Heavyweight Championship against Sid Vicious. He had actually basically become the top babyface a few months earlier because he beat Flair for the title at the Great American Bash. And he had actually joined the Horseman a few months earlier than that. I think it was late 89. He had joined the Horseman. Right. You know, it was around, he probably uh, kicked out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Arn had actually returned because he had a year-long stint with the WWF with Tully Blanchard as the Brain Busters. But Tully did actually did not join Arn in the return and the reunion of the Horseman because I believe he, I think he failed a drug test at some point in during his yeah, WWF well, here, run. This is a well, this is a well-documented off-told story, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you the cliff notes. Mm-hmm. Right before Tully and Arn left there, Vince had a random drug and Tully popped for Coke. And they were on their way out anyway. He went ahead and got rid of Tully then, worked out his dates and left. There was this idea to bring Tully and Arn back and reform the original horseman with, with Barry, Tully, Arn, and Flair, and only as the manager, because as you pointed out earlier, J.J. Arn got it. Well, word got back to Atlanta that Tully had popped positive from low on this test. So the offer that they had made him was retracted. And the deal they gave Arn was significantly reduced, which I've never understood because Arn had nothing to do with Tully using drugs. And so he got punished for it. And this was to this day has always been in the craw of Arn and rightfully so. And I think Tully feels bad about it too. But this was, that was the very beginning of Flair becoming very disgruntled because at the time, him and Arn were best friends. Mm-hmm. He's like, this guy brings so much to the table and you're going to punish him for something that another guy did? That's bullcrap. And, you know, they still went with a full horse. So this, is, this explains the sting inclusion and then withdraw. And then they needed a fourth horseman. And, and once again, not knowing talent, only knowing the look and not understanding the wrestling business, the powers that be said, ooh, Let's make Sid a full horseman, mm-hmm. which I think other than Paul Romo, we can all agree was probably the worst fit ever to be a horseman. Right. Don't get me wrong. Sid's look is amazing. Yeah. And he, he, he was actually very athletic in his prime as well. Mm-hmm. When he got six, nine. Yeah. You can talk to me all you want about steroids. Steroids don't make you six, nine. Right. I mean, he just is a naturally big dude with a skeletal muscle structure that when he put his mind to working out, he got cut. Yeah. But his in-ring style and his look never fit the horses, in my opinion. Are you in agreement with that? Yes. Yeah. If we were having this conversation 20 years ago, I might have a different opinion. But yeah, I say that because the quick thing about the horsemen, what I think you need to have in order to fit with the horsemen is you got to have that tailored suit look. Flair's always always in a yeah. suit. Tully was, Tully was usually in a suit. You, you got to have that jet flying, limousine riding, wheeling, dealing uh, right. look to you. JJ and, had a suit, but nice. Right, yeah. right. 
Yeah. And then the guys they had that weren't shoot wearers, Arn, Dean Malenko, Barry, they still fit because they were wrestling. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'm sorry. I don't mean any disrespect to Sid Vicious and all. Okay. But I'm sorry. Trading Tully Blanchard for Sid Vicious is an unfair trade to anybody. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you agree with that, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sid's, Sid was just better as a, uh, as a Godzilla type uh, one man yes. thing. But, but, but because of all this and because of, like we said, their desire to, to kind of draw back Ric Flair from the main event. That, plus, you've just seen the Flair were stink, what, three years? Mm-hmm. Like you said, Sting had just won the world title about a year ago from Flair. This is, this is why this match is booked as Sid versus. Mm-hmm. So, so do you want to talk about the crazy finish to this match? Because this was the first time I can recall where the horsemen were actually depicted as babyfaces for a while. They were kind of babyfaces right. by default when they, would, when they would face the NWO several years later. But Sting being part of the group, and again, does a guy in face paint really fit with the horsemen? But there was a story uh, right. at play here. This, this, you could make the argument, is a, a, a part of a basically a two-and-a-half-year-long storyline because they first did that Flair versus Sting match and the original Clash of the Champions in 88. Here we are, Sting wins the title two years later. But in the end of 1989, I think Sting won that, that Starcade tournament and was kind of welcomed in by the he horsemen. Did. Yep. So they were a babyface faction for a while. But that was short-lived because the horsemen turned on Sting a few months later because Sting still wanted a title match with Flair. And s- something that was un- unfortunate, I don't really want to say it was a happy accident because no, n- nobody liked getting hurt, but... This was also the time, it was uh, it was another clash, where it was the Horsemen in a multi-man cage match, uh, I want to say with Gary Hurts, you know, with Muda and, and Terry Funk. Sting yeah, was, Corporation. And Sting was trying to climb into the cage to get at the Horsemen. And I think it was Doug Dillinger and a couple other guys were trying to pull him off the cage, and Sting legitimately hurt his knee. And yep. that put him on the shelf for a while. It delayed the match because I would assume they might have done the match earlier than that July or May. They wanted Flair to drop the bat, drop the belt to Luger. And Flair just mm-hmm. flat out said no. And he said no disrespect to Lex, once again proving they were pushing Lex too fast while even thinking this is the thing to do. Flair said no, I promised Sting I would drop it to him next. So Flair used his considerable clout muscle, said no, no disrespect to Lex. I made a promise as a man to Sting and I plan to keep it. Mm-hmm. I can work other guys and keep busy while he repairs. And he told Sting, you just take care of yourself and heal your knee up. I'll be here with this belt when you get back and I'll drop it. That's exactly what. That was one time where Flair did flex his muscle and get where he wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I think he even told Sting while he was going to the hospital. So don't you worry. This belt's staying right. I'm just going to keep it warm yep. for you or something to, that, something to that effect. Right. Which is one of the few times that Flair was kind of went, went into business for himself and put his foot down like Hogan would become notorious for. And it probably was better because Luger was not ready for a world power run at that point. Right. He was barely ready for a U.S. title run, which is like I just said, is why they had Stan take it off of to begin with. Mm-hmm. And uh, so with they turned on Sting, Sting's ousted from the group. This is about the time Barry Windham returned and rejoined the Horsemen. Mm-hmm. And like we said at the top of the program, this is also around the time Oli retired and kind of became the manager of the group. And that's why right. they put Sid in because they, they couldn't get Tully. So, or I shouldn't say couldn't get, they didn't want Tully. Uh, so that, that's a setup for right. the match here. And for its time, uh, for anybody listening to this who hasn't seen the show or hasn't heard of it, I think for, for its time, for it's one of the wackier finishes I think I've ever seen, but how they did it, mm-hmm. they probably did it the best way they could because they're having the match, Sid's being the monster, Sting's being the, the underdog baby face, and they brawl to the floor, Sting goes chasing after Sid, and even Paulie Dangerously, a.k.a. Paul Heyman, who was, on, who was the color commentator, had said, why is Sid running away? He can't win the title on the outside. Because, of course, the, the title, couldn't, yeah, title couldn't change hands on a countout. Well, they quickly cut back to the ring, and Sid was being chased back into the ring, and it was all done where Sting's back was to the camera at this point. You didn't actually get a full-on shot. And mm-hmm. so Sting, quote-unquote, lifts Sid up for a body slam, but then collapses under the weight and Sid Sid actually gets the pin and they start to award the title to him and announce him as the champion. And there's even the balloons falling and all that that you would see at the end of a big title match. And all of a sudden Sting runs back out to the ring 
And then he's got a rope on his arm. So we're led to believe that he got tied to something backstage. And it was actually Barry Windham that dressed up as Sting in a matching outfit to go out and uh, lay down for Sid. And the reason why I say they, they did it by the best they, they could is because obviously Barry Windham's physique doesn't look anything like Sting's. He's a lot taller. The hair's different. Blonde hair. Yeah. But because they shot it with everything being, seeing everybody's back to the camera, it was pretty easy to not notice the change. And by the time the real Sting had come out, I think Barry had already booked and already, already ran from the ring. But Sting makes his comeback, retains the title. But earlier in the night, during the broadcast, during one of these interview segments, we saw the Black Scorpion dressed up like a Nazgul from Lord of the Rings or something like that. Just all black, uh, head to toe, and a, and a uh, hoodie. Mm-hmm. And this mysterious Black Scorpion, nobody seemed to know who, who he was. And he says he has black magic. And if, if, you're, if you know the voices, you know that it's Ole Anderson doing the voice backstage into a microphone. But it's because he did the same thing for Shockmaster a couple years later. Ding! <laughs> yeah. Ding! <laughs> and so here's Black Scorpion talking about his dark magic or black magic, and he just pulls a girl out of the crowd and kidnaps her, basically. And then right. I, suppose, I guess we're supposed to believe like he teleported after he went backstage, even though he had plenty of time to run around to the other side of the and stage. Here you're wondering why none of the viewers are calling 911 to report a kidnapping live right. on a pay-per-view. <laughs> right. But this was the last big match before that showdown with the Black Scorpion. Now, I don't want to get too delayed to sidetracked on the Black Scorpion because that's not really the point of Halloween Havoc here. But the Black Scorpion, of course, turned out to be Ric Flair. And there's a whole other story behind that right. that I right. didn't, couldn't, didn't really make much of. This was, again, that Jim Hurd era where they did a lot of stuff that was just really right. corny. But as far as the event, at least just the, the matches I saw, and of course, like you said, I, I guess I'm biased because I had a love tag team so much. This, I thought there was a pretty good wrestling show. The hokiness, for the most part, was kept to a minimum outside of the Black Scorpion stuff. But you look at the names right. on the cards here, all, all of these Hall of Fame level wrestlers all over this show. And like I said, mm-hmm. this is the type of stuff that in, started gaining my interest in WCW and why over the next few years, I actually became probably a bigger WCW fan than I was WWE fan because I've crowed before about the Bill Watts uh, run in 1992 about how hard hitting it was. So this, I think, is a good example of showcasing some of the good and some of the bad in, in, in WCW at the time, but there was a lot more good about this show. I'm assuming, I'm assuming you like the show too, right? I don't like it as much as you did. Uh, mm-hmm. I like the undercard. The Steiners, I'm not a big a fan of, but you put them in there with the Nasty Boys and it's just four big old dudes slamming in each other. So I'd always be a fan of that. I'll do my love Doom. And this is Flair, Prime Flair, and him and Arn are an underrated tag team. So that was fun. Stan and, and Lex, for, for what Lex was at the time, was great because Stan carried him. The The main event was just, I'm old school. The, the correct term for this is, while that finish was a bit overproduced, the old school guy in me says, you better have your finger on the sensor button here, is, is one of those things that if I was looking through the curtain and I thought, what, what was that? Mm-hmm. That's what the first thing I'd think. And it was just silly. The thing about it is, like you said, they, it, 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 as to what the limitations were of what they could do with the situation at the time, they did as good as they could. But any finish where you have got to have the announcers, who I thought dangerously and, and JR did a good job, having to explain what probably happened, you have an issue with it. Mm-hmm. You should never have a finish that convoluted. You're having them having to explain, well, Sting has a rope tied to him. He must have gotten jumped and tied up in the back. Now, what what they did, the skullduggery involved, is a thousand percent horse. And that I had no problem with. It was just so fantastically unbelievable and convoluted that when you have to have announcers explain to the fans and think for the fans what happened, you've got a problem. I'm sure you can understand why I say Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But as far as, like you said, as far as talent level goes on the card, yeah. I mean, you opened up the show with the Midnight versus Tommy Rich and Richie Rich Morton. Those are Hall of Famers. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the opening match. So, yeah, that, that from from a, a star quality level, thumbs up. From a, a match until the main event left, not bad. But once you got the main event, it was kind of, and not because it was, it was all smoke and mirrors and nothing else. And you're, you shouldn't have that in, in, in a title match, in my opinion. Not at a main event of a paper, mm-hmm. just me. 
think about you remember when Yokozuna beat Hogan and they had the photographer on the outside hit Hogan with the fireball? Yeah. Same thing. Same mm-hmm. thing. I have a problem with a fireball being used by heel in the finish of a big championship match, but to have a, a photographer on the outside do it instead of Yokozuna himself throwing salt in his eyes, which was the gimmick at the time, just didn't make sense. I'll, I'll always be a detractor on those type of finishes. Always. Mm-hmm. Plus, now, it makes it makes when, the referee look like an idiot. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying I don't like finishes like that. Remember the finish of the uh, Undertaker versus Yokozuna in the casket match, where oh, it, yeah. like like they showed the big screen with Undertaker's eyes pop open and he talks from inside the casket, and then you see Undertaker ascend to the heavens. Basically, mm-hmm. if you remember that match, uh, that makes yeah. sense. If it's Undertaker, fortunately, I do remember that. But like like you said, if it's anybody else, it would have been. Even sillier. But you know, if Taker's supernatural. It worked because one, it was The Undertaker, and two, it wasn't a title match. Right. See my point? Yeah, yeah. That's my biggest beef. This, this is the NWA at time, NWA World Heavyweight title. This very prestigious belt that's been held by Flair and Dusty and Harley and Jack Briscoe and Dory Funk and Terry Funk and Pat O'Connor, all these guys. And then you have, could you imagine Harley Race a lot of the finish like this to happen one of his title, nope. title no, matches on the show? Okay, so you see my point Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm going to go back to what we always do on this podcast. What would Harley? Mm-hmm. I could see Harley if he was told the food. He would have taken a puff off the gold cigarette. The kid is, no. That's all he would have No. Now, Harley would have had no problem doing the honors if you came up with a finish to make fifth, but he would have done that. Right. So that was my only beef with it. And, and I also do think, and this isn't, a, this isn't a fault of any of the guys on the card. I and this is I guess we'll kind of just segue now into the fallout from this paper. One of the issues as a whole at this time period, WCW, was that transitional stage we're talking about. Where you've got this hot heel act in Doom, the only because you've already done the Steiners, you've moved on to something else, and you've turned another hot heel act, the full horseman, into baby faces at the feudum. But at the same time, they're also feuding with Sting. That being total heel, that's a little bit confusing as well, in my opinion. And the fallout from this directly, which we will see at the next pay-per-view in Starcade, we have another match with Tommy Rich and Ricky Mort, but this time it's against some Freebirds, and, they, and the Freebirds attack Robert, who's still on crutches after the match. So the, least, the two teams that won actually face each other in the next big show, so they get that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Dune winds up facing the full horseman in a street fight, which, by the way, is one of the best street fights I've ever seen. But at the last minute, I remember when the show comes on, they announced that Ric Flair's hurt, and he's going to be replaced by Barry Windham. What we, and, and they set that up with an angle where Flair was in a limousine supposedly going to accept an award or something, but Teddy Long had paid off the, the limo driver, and they pulled over, and like a bunch of street thugs jumped in and beat up Flair. That was never explained away whether that was legit or not, because Doom, who was feuding with the horseman, but it was an excuse to get Flair out of the tag team match, because as you said earlier, he winds up being the black sport. It was an excuse for him to not wrestle two matches back to back. So there is a progression of some storyline from this or, or common logic that two tag teams farther down on the card, both of them win their matches. They face each other in the next pay-per-view, as you brought up, trying to move up the ranks of, of contendership. So there was some semblance of logic, I think, in the fallout of this. But this has never followed up. The Sid Vicious thing is, thanks Sid, not long that Sid's gone, isn't he? Yeah, I think he jumps to WWF the following year, I think. Right. He was 91 when he made, it becomes when he made his Yeah. Yeah, it becomes suggestions. Yeah. And so there's no follow-up. Plus, plus, you're already in the middle of the Black Scorpion thing anyways, which we'll, we'll talk about the Black Scorpion again at some other time. But you must realize, like you said, Jim Hurd day. Jim Hurd begging Ole as his booker. Well, who's going to be the next challenger for Flair? And he just throws out of his butt the Black Scorpion just to shut up Jim Hurd. Having no idea who the Black Scorpion is or what he's going to do with the tangle. And Jim Hurd's like, I love it. Book it. So this is part of the reason that, that the Black Scorpion becomes this convoluted mess. Because it's just a throwaway name that only throws at Jim Hurd, trying to shut him up as he's pestering him about who's going to be Sting's next title contender. And then Jim Hurd loving it just on the name alone. And can't mm-hmm. go with it. And now Ole's paying himself. So for what it was, I, I didn't mind this show. I will say this. The finish to the main event is one that I will use a lot when I'm training guys. This is an extremely overproduced finish. I don't mean this to be rude, and please don't take it the wrong way. Okay. A lot of wrestling fans, 
are not too bright. And you don't want to, as a booker or as a talent, you don't want to make them think too much. And right. this finish made people way too much, in my opinion. I think the way I would put it to try to get to what you're saying is the way I would probably put it is they're trying too hard. They're trying too hard exactly. to and make it, something yeah. different. Right. And, and even wrestling fans who are smart, like yourself and myself, we have both openly said we watch wrestling not to think, to, to, mm-hmm. to not have to think. And this made us think. So it is what it is. Right. But I can see what you're saying from, and agree with you. For, as you're talking just pure star power, boy, it, it, it makes you look at the, at, the, at the stuff that WWE and AEW are doing nowadays and go, man, where's the star power? Doesn't it? Right. Because all due respect to the guys that are on these cards now, there is some of them, I think, as time goes on, will be remembered fondly. I think Roman Reigns and Seth Rollins and, and the Usos, New Day, some of these people are going to be remembered fondly. Randy Orton. Yeah. But not, not like literally every single match on the card is going to be remembered. And literally every single match on this card, the, at least the ones that made Peacock, made the, the, the VCR cut, are really, like you said, so... I just don't see that right now in, in either WWE or WWE or, or AEW is mm-hmm. that you, though they might have a bunch of, of, of future Hall of Famers on their shows, you're not going to have the card where literally every single match has the Hall of Famer involved like this show. So that alone probably makes this, this, uh, ma- this, this whole pay-per-view a little bit better in my mind. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's going to wrap up our look at Halloween Havoc 1990. So we've done three Halloween Havocs now, of course, the last the past two years. Once again, this is our crossover month for October with a Hollywood theme. We're going to be doing a lot of stuff both here as well as our Geekville Radio shows that are all under the same banner. This is Classic Wrestling Memories. We can be found at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. I know that's a bit of a long URL to type, but hopefully it's easy enough to remember. You can subscribe there. You can... Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you can get podcasts. You can find Classic Wrestling Memories as well as our sister shows all on the Geek Radio Network. And we're on the social media at Classic Wrestling Memories on Facebook. And we've had our community is growing pretty big there. We got over 2,000 people now that, uh, that like our Facebook page. So I'm thrilled and, and humbled to see that that number keeps rising. So definitely... Thanks for everybody who's listening in. If you've listened to us for the first time, I hope you like what you hear. Let us know what we're doing well. Let us know if there's something else we could be doing better. And Train, if somebody wants to talk to you on social media, where can they find you? I'm always available on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JV. That is pretty much my handle across all social media platforms. So you can look up Train underscore JV and you see a lot of reflect pictures of a guy with a teddy bear and hospital scrub. That's me. Looking forward to the month of October every year. Our next podcast will most likely be our nostalgia trip. Like I said earlier, we're going to look at Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys for this year for our Halloween theme. And the next couple classic wrestling memories. We meant to, to, to record one before this, but we didn't get to it. We're going to talk about the Rick, Rick Flair's last match, pay-per-view, mm-hmm. the passing of two absolute legends in the business, Antonio Noki and Judo G. LaBelle. So until then... Thanks for listening and, and always appreciate it. And we'll catch you next time, hopefully with the South Strip, but if not, the next class pressing. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.